Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a sensationalist imprint of the Specram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of John Wilkins' conference room is paper towel buff Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left is surprisingly poor poker player Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And joining us live via satellite while enjoying the fresh breeze in Dalal, Ethiopia, Bill Sproul. Hey. Thanks for joining us. All right, before we move on to lies, damn lies, and linguistics, we have a guest with us, and her name is Devin. Devin, say hi. Hi, everybody. Devin, remind me of your last name because I can't be bothered to pull up that email. <laughs> uh, Steiner. Uh, oh, really? Not Steiner? Uh, no, <laughs> not in this country you anyway. Sure you don't want to give it a switch. Steiner's pretty cool. It is, but I'm I'm pretty comfortable with Steiner. Oh, okay. Well, you know, for each, sorry about that. Yeah, for each of their own, extremely disappointing. I know. Did you uh, Did you find your way here? All right. Um, did you get past the dragon? You know, it took me some time, but after a hard fought battle, I I did make it. All right. The dragon is still alive, though, right? Because we need him. To keep the riffraff oh. out. No, nobody told me that. Oh, Sorry. Oh, brother. That's all right. Trey will work on a replacement dragon. He's got loads of free time. Anyway, and now he's here to introduce to us lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Go for it, Trey. All right. So you guys know the drill. I'll read you three language-related items. Two of them are true. One of them is false. The fictitious one may or may not be based on something that's actually true. Uh, after I read them, each of you will then have to talk yourselves into a choice of which one is the false item. When you're all done, I'll reveal which one is the lie, and we can discuss. Now, we've been keeping score from podcast to podcast to see who's the most gullible. So far, Bill is doing uh, the best with three out of five, and Keith and David are tied with two out of five, and Devin will now be representing the guests for this and future podcasts. Hey, hey, just as a reminder, who won last time? Maybe we should start over. <laughs> you know, she can almost catch up in just this one episode. <laughs> All right. Give it, give it to us. The reigning champion is ready. Okay. Uh, the theme this time is sign language shenanigans. Hmm. Item number one. In Taiwanese sign language, the sign for brother is the same as the American hand gesture, commonly referred to as the finger. Number two. In Japanese sign language, the sign for condom looks like the signer is unrolling the condom over their head. Number three. In Belgian sign language, the sign for love looks like the signer is sticking their finger down their throat. Before the show, I randomized you all, and I will call on you in order now. Keith, you're first. Okay. Well, I guess I don't have much to say about this. Number three is clearly wrong, so the other two must be right. Based on? Uh, you know, it's just, you got to go with the feelings here sometimes. Uh, <laughs> sometimes sometimes there's not a lot else to work with. So uh, I'm just going to go with the feeling, and uh, number three is the wrong one. Try to be more interesting. David. <laughs> well... Since I'm second and there are two people after me, I won't tell you why I know that some of these are, in fact, true. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to go with Keith. Number three has got to be false. This is just something that's true because the finger-in-the-mouth one is universally, and I mean universally, that's the sign for where's the bus. Um, so it couldn't possibly be the sign for love, and that is a fact. <sighs> I have spoken. All right. Thank you, David. Uh, Devin? Wow. Okay. To be completely uninteresting, I'm going to have to agree that three is wrong, but I have thought it through a little. Oh, unlike the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, uh, it's more than a gut feeling. So the first one, right, I think it's pretty common that one gesture and one 
sign language can mean something completely different in another. So that's not unsurprising. The idea that brother could also be the finger. And I've given the finger to my brother a number of times, so that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, gestures like in sign language tend to be an action, right? You can act out whatever you're referring to. So number two, the unrolling of the condom over the head kind of makes sense too. And I just, I don't know. Number three just seems like it couldn't possibly be right. So I agree with you guys. All right, then. All right. Uh, Bill, is it going to be a a sweep for me? Okay, let's see. I am willing to believe the Taiwanese one because that middle finger is frequently the longest one, given family relations and so forth, and it would kind of make sense. The Japanese sign language one has going for it that making the unrolling motion over your head is probably much more polite than anything more iconic (laughs) than one could do. And there are certainly signs one would not want to make in public, even in that type of discussion, so that it has that going for it. Number three, the only way I could see Belgian doing that is if they transferred their word for to love food. Because Mm -hmm. if it's like Belgian vegetable dishes, really good food is food that will not come back up by itself. (laughs) All right. I can see that, but I'm going to have to agree that number three is the iffiest one, frankly. All right. Well, you guys can... They're like lemmings, aren't they, Trey? They just follow me like (laughs) lemmings. (laughs) Well, this time you did not lead them astray. The third one is, in fact, false. Yeah. Uh, I made that one up. Uh, You guys complain about them being too arbitrary (laughs) about linguistic analysis. And they're too obvious. And now they're too obvious. Maybe you should let the guests make up the... The puzzles for us, you know. Yeah, starting next time. (laughs) Right. Okay, so like one of the following languages is fake. Spanish, Italian, French. Right. Trick question. They're all fake. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, of course, would be the right answer. I want to let you know, I actually did know about Taiwanese brother. And this comes from my very visual memory. I once saw a picture of every handshape used in Taiwanese sign language. It showed you uh, what the handshape was and what the basic meaning of that handshape was in its most basic form. And right around the middle, sure enough, there's the page flipping you the bird saying brother. So I remembered that one. So it was 50-50 for me. I didn't know that one. I had seen the Japanese one before with the condom. Wow. That's pretty remarkable. You do a lot of strange internet surfing then. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks once again for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics, and thanks for participating, Devin. Not a problem. Before we move on, we have some language news for you, of course, but we have to get in a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by People for the Ethical Treatment of Functionalists. Functionalists. They can't explain anything without your help. All right, now for some language news. First, the English language is unfortunately home to many different accents. There is hope, though, for the future of the pure American English accent which I speak. Marge Feinstein Whitaker, a true patriot, is doing her part to rid the world of the atrocious Boston accent with its characteristic wicked hads and nomagasia paras and leave it to stinkos and what have you. Uh, she teaches a class in Boston in which she forces students to reclaim their lost R's by clicking at them with a dog clicker anytime any of them pronounces, for example, hard as had. So, first question, good thing or great thing? 
tray. On balance, I guess it's a good thing, but it can't really be taken as wholly great. As a descriptivist, it's always kind of sad to see any dialect or language not get the respect that it's due, you know, the same as any other dialect or language. On the other hand, taking account the sociolinguistic reality of the situation, it's, it's clear that a strong Boston accent is, is a hindrance to people out in the real world, whether anyone thinks it should be or not. If I let my subconscious prescriptivist tendencies surface for a moment, I also have to say that unlike the fairly neutral Midwestern accent or charming Southern accent, the Boston accent can be pretty annoying. It's even slightly more annoying than a typical Californian accent. And that justifies the cruel and unusual treatment of using a dog clicker on the students trying to get rid of their accent. I, I, I feel as if I've been singled out. <laughs> what what I say? Now, okay, first of all, at least according to Linguistiana, there isn't any difference between the Southern California accent and, say, the Kansas accent, all right? Uh, so I, I don't see any need for any, any, any dog clicking, at least in my direction. <laughs> I don't know. You got that nasty cot cot merger. What are you What are you talking about? I I heard you say the same word twice there. I think. Oh, you can't hear the difference. You're just a bad linguist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that are your or bad productionist. All right. So look, here's the thing. So the, the the there are two ways to spell the ah sound in English, right? There's there's the o way and then the a u g h way. So there's caught and caught. One, you know, when you caught a ball, and the other when you're sleeping on the cot after catching the ball. They're the same word. And I think that we have definitive proof that they're the same word in the fact that I pronounce them the same way. Right. Let's hear that. Uh, there's caught. All right. And caught. Wait, wait, no, wait, no, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. You don't even know which one I was pronouncing where. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Unbelievable. Uh, all right. Well, listen, let's, let's get to the meat of this thing. Basically, what this class is, is aversion therapy, no? Yeah, exactly. All right. Yes, it is. Good thing or bad thing? I don't know. Maybe we'll know by the end of the podcast. Hey, I didn't even say anything. Uh, all right. Okay. So <laughs> I could hear you thinking it. Oh, geez. All right. Now, listen, I actually do have a real, based on linguistic science, non, non-serious, so that is serious, uh, suggestion here. I think that this entire class can be replaced by a machine or computer program. Now, this is how it works. What they're mainly training on with this Boston accent, what they're mainly targeting is the absence of the post-vocalic R. So you set up hard, you have had. All you need to do, though, is look. Post-vocalic R in English is associated with a drop of the third formant. Uh, you can just take a look at this in Prot, and you can see it pretty clearly. Third formant just drops off sharply when you have post-vocalic R. So then, all you need to do is create a program that clicks at you whenever you pronounce a word that it has in its database as having a post-vocalic R without it. In other words, it'll click at you when the third formant remains level rather than drops at the end. Okay. Right. And, and not just a computer program, but a smartphone app. Yeah, I don't see any reason to limit this to the classroom. I think it would be pretty easy to just have people carry it around all the time. I hate to tell you this, but language log already thought of it. What? Already thought of what? One of the language log authors thought of the IP, which does exactly that. <laughs> Those guys are hacks, and they stole my idea before I had it. They pre-stole it, yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, linguists, they sit in their towers, their ivory towers with their phonemes and what have you, and they just won't leave the common man alone to make an honest buck. Uh, I have a completely different solution for this problem, though. Okay. Which problem do you want to solve? Just so well, we well, understand just, your just solution. The mindsets that lead to this dialect class, because if you look at the story, they have two repre 
representative people taking the class. One of them is this guy who wants to be an actor. And it makes sense that you would need to get control over your dialect if you're playing people from other dialects, because otherwise you'll end up being Kevin Costner in that Robin Hood movie. Uh, But the other is this woman who just feels that Boston dialect sounds stupid. The way to deal with that is not to get rid of the Boston accent, but to make her aware of all the stupid things that people say who don't have Boston accents. It's just a clicker that applies to other dialects. Uh. You just need a bunch of people willing to go to public events and use the clicker whenever anyone says something stupid. I mean, political (laughs) rallies would be a perfect venue for this. You wouldn't be able to hear anything. It'd just be clickety-clickety-clickety. Exactly. And that would actually (laughs) sound less stupid because it would drown out some of the really stupid comments. If you're worried that you sound stupid because of your dialect, one of the things you may need to realize is that... Other people really can sound stupid because of their lack of logic. Sounds heck of sick. There's a, a flaw in your logic in that you're being too logical. People make attribution errors, and you know, if somebody says something stupid, they might think if they have a Boston accent, they say, "Oh, they have a Boston accent; they must be stupid." As opposed to if someone else, someone actually says something stupid, you don't blame it on their dialect or their culture. You just go, "Well, that person is in fact stupid." And also, it's not necessarily about the woman in the article. It was how she felt about herself. It's also the fact that other idiots out there will treat you like you're stupid because you have a particular accent. That's why I no longer have a Texas accent. Uh, now, now, hold on. I actually had a question here. Now, of course, people that speak with a, with a, with a Texas accent are dumb. That's, that's, oh, all right. But this one actually in the article struck me as new. I had never heard of the Boston accent being considered dumb. I mean, Boston, that's where, uh, isn't that where Harvard is? Oh, like, the Harvard accent is a completely different thing. Well, but it's in Boston, isn't it? Or somewhere near, you know, I actually walked by there when I was in Boston. So it's got to be in Boston. At Harvard, they don't drop the R's. They replace them with nulls. <laughs> It's a more informed kind of uh, dialogue. Oh, I see. Inserted after spell out, is it? Theoretically informed. <laughs> oh, goodness. Personally, I think I'm going to pick up one of those clickers, and, and I have your home phone number, Ray. I'm going to click at you every time I read anything you've written that has a two-thirds ellipsis in it. Why do you think I only click twice? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, for those interested in enrolling in Feinstein Whitaker's class, and this is absolutely true, you can go to prospeech.com. And that's absolutely true. Go type it in. That's right. She's a pro, and she will make you pro, apparently. That won't work in pro drop languages, will it? (laughs) Oh, goodness. You and your linguistic stuff, I tells you. Everybody, put your serious faces on, though. The Oxford comma is under fire again by either liberal elitists or right-wing wackos, depending on your political persuasion. The Oxford comma is, of course, the comma that follows a list item in a book, a list item in a list. Uh, Run the tape back if you missed that one. It's proper and necessary, of course, and now Oxford University itself, in its vaunted style guide, is suggesting that the much-heralded and well-respected Oxford comma ought not to be used at all. Personally, I'm glad Victor Borga is dead, because if he wasn't, he would be. So what is this? A publicity stunt? A last chance at the spotlight before Oxford University is replaced by a Walmart? Whose head rolls for this one? Well, uh, let me let me make a comment on this. It's not exactly a publicity stunt. It's yet another one of these grabs for power by a certain segment of the linguistic community, and uh, I'll explain why I think that. Of course, this looks like it's an issue of orthography, you know, mm. superficially, but naturally it's not. If it was just an issue of orthography, we wouldn't bother to talk about it on this show, but uh, <laughs> this is an issue about something serious. It's about grammar, and like all issues about grammar, 
this has to do with that most uh, fundamental topic in linguistic theory, which has to do with uh, recursiveness, the limits of recursiveness in language. Probably some of our listeners aren't linguists, so uh, maybe not everybody knows about the importance of this debate that runs kind of like this. The so-called generativists say that, uh, in principle, any linguistic utterance could be of unlimited length because languages can embed complex structures without limit, without any theoretical limit anyway. And in the case of noun phrases, these so-called generativists would claim that a speaker could string together an infinite series of conjoined nouns, and that would be permissible because of the abstract grammatical system. And then on the other side of the debate, there are these uh, other linguists usually described as those who couldn't get into a generative graduate program, and they respond by saying, nonsense. Now, of course, I'm not going to take a position on a loaded issue like that, but I do think that we need to recognize that this Oxford comma is really just an attempt to extend conjoined noun phrases beyond the length that's psychologically real, psychologically possible for natural language. So fundamentally, this it's not about orthography. It's an effort by generativists to solidify their control of linguistic theory. I see. So what you're suggesting is that it's not possible, not possible, to just extend like this indefinitely, just adding list items and so on. It's not possible. And in fact, that Oxford comma is used for things that are already outside the system. That's to add on things in a list that are really not grammatical. But then what will we do when, uh, when bills come forth and we need to tack on writers? That's what the comma is there for. Well, I think you're confusing a couple of orthographic marks here. There's the Oxford comma, which is defined by the fact that it's required in the series. And then there is another comma, which is deployed by writers for utilitarian purposes. That's the Manchester comma. Hmm. What was actually going on here was that the PR people at Oxford, who apparently skipped a chapter in the PR book, were not using the Oxford style guide in their own publications. They were using the Manchester comma. Hmm. Is that real? I can't tell. Is it live the, or is it memorized? You know, normally your PR department would use the style guide that your own press publishes because that enhances, um, let's say, the belief that the style guide is usable. But in this case, apparently the PR people thought it was time for a fresh new approach. Actually, that's only a problem if it, in fact, gets out into the, you know, into the outside world that you're not using your own style guide. So then I guess the question becomes, uh, where was the leak? Who was responsible? David, yeah. public relations. They relate to the public. Everyone knew it. Wow. Come on. Yeah, it, it's kind of like New Coke here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. My thought then is I guess that we're going to have to stop using the Oxford Commons speech as well. At least that's how they would have it, I suppose. Well, none of us use commas in speech. No, no. Oh, David, David does. Yes. Each of us uses commas in speech. That was a two-thirds ellipsis. That was not. <laughs> anyway, in print, there's already a solution that was published in Specgram way back in 2005. We proposed the odd com, and the idea is that you put the comma just below the printing line so that it appears to be both there and not there. Then it could look like an Oxford comma or an apostrophe that goes to the line below. And, of course, nobody knows where apostrophes are supposed to go, so nobody would notice that. Or it could look like a spider that was high on printing ink and just got smeared into the page. And then it becomes all things to all readers. Mm. 
But then if we open up the lines in between the lines to the possibility of printing, so like we have a space for a comma there, that gives us extra space in which to write text. And if we write text there, then we'll also need to utilize the space in between that miniaturized line of text and the other line of text below it to put another comma in between, you know, this uh, odd comma, as you call it. That gives us the potential of having the moire comma array, <laughs> which can actually trigger epileptic seizures in people attempting to read the text, which is great for publicity. I was going to say, would anyone notice the difference in linguistics articles? <laughs> They'd have to read them first. That's true. Yeah, although sometimes they look similar. A petty mal seizure and sleep are distinguishable. With the second state, of course, being the usual result of a linguistics article. True. <laughs> I think, David, your proposal here for these lines, smaller lines embedded between other lines, that is recursion. Which gets That's back exactly to, what I was worried about. See, and gets, that, that's yep. exactly the sort of thing that linguists are always trying to sneak in on us. Mm. More recursion. You're See, right. languages are recursive. So I think David is actually a plant from Big Generative. Oh, brother. All right, li listen, guys, we're all friends here, right? <laughs> no I don't think we've established that. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, uh, oh, dear. Uh, you, you just give me give me one minute here. Give me one minute. Hey, hey, get me out of here. Get me out of here. Um, anyway, um, so uh, were we talking about uh, uh, commas and stuff? I believe that horse is dead. <laughs> I think that was the end there. Okay. All right. Um, uh, anyway, personally, this is, and this is my serious note about this. As far as I'm concerned, there's absolutely no controversy here at all. There is no issue about how to use the Oxford comma or not. It's just an issue of how to use the comma. If you know how to use the comma, then you don't need any other rules. But uh, anyway, nobody knows how to use the comma anymore. So I guess I'm the only one that knows how to write and can claim the title literate. Well, it's fortunate that we have someone we can all turn to when we have a question. And don't you forget it. <laughs> but we're not going to bother to. <laughs> all right, we have to take a break, but when we come back, we'll have some words of wisdom from the Lady Fan Todd. But before we break, I think we should dedicate this segment to David's parents, Ayn Rand, and God. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, does your man suffer from shorter-than-average vowel length? Do your girlfriends giggle when he speaks? Do you wish he could last a little longer? We can help. Our special proprietary herbal supplement mix enhances, extends, enlarges, and expands your man's vowels. Our pharmacolinguists have created a special blend of Japanese ginseng, Hungarian saw palmetto, Vietnamese ginkgo biloba, Uisenyo damiana extract, Sanskrit yohimbe, Fijian deer antler, and Old English horny goat weed. I love a man with long, sexy vowels. Length mark male enhancement. Make your man all you want him to be. Warning, this statement has not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Be sure to check with your healthcare practitioner before taking any dietary supplement. Common side effects include uncontrolled gym nation, sudden onset ligatures, barred gilded jays, undersharped ends, excessive vowel unrounding, nighttime trilling, and in extreme cases, loss of frication. If you experience vowels lasting more than four hours, consult the phonetician immediately. All right, we're back. And now it's time for Words of Wisdom with Lady Fan Todd. Bill? 
Uh, I know you sent the mailbag out here, but I got a note saying that the boat sank. So I went ahead and checked the NQ that we had on Skype mail. And there were, in fact, some questions for Lady Fan Todd. So I think I'll cue the first one up for you. Dear Lady Fan Todd, a group of theorists have borrowed my syntactic concept, and I'm really happy about that. But they've renamed it and keep acting like they invented it. I don't think their grad students even know where it came from. What kind of card can I send to gently remind them of polite scholarly practice? And here's the response from Lady Fantod. I should think you'd be grateful to be rid of the wretched thing. In my day, we never bothered with syntax at all. One simply doesn't know what to say about it. It seems to be all about three desperately tedious people called John, Bill, and Mary who spend their time exchanging books and putting various objects on the piano. There's also a Malagasy woman named Noro who occasionally drifts in, cooks some chicken, and drifts out again. One longs for a juicy murder, or at least a plot twist of some kind. (sighs) Timeless and timely. Thanks to the good lady, and thank you. All right, let's open up the old Twitter feed and see what our many, many fans have been tweeting. Here we have one from somebody called Mr. Tattoo XUX. I want to get a tat with some crazy Japanese letter on it. Can you wreck one at me? I think most people with Japanese tattoos have messages that don't actually make any sense in Japanese, don't they? Oh, I guess. So, uh, There's a website about this, which is great. And, uh, you know, things people have things that say noodle and it's upside down. Or <laughs> we, we, can, we can come up with something for you, yes. <laughs> the question is, how much are we going to charge for this? Well, we're I think a nice sequence that says, I am illiterate, would probably work. Mm. And can it be comically misspelled, but still read? <laughs> that mm. might be a little harder in Japanese. Yeah. Mm. It can be done. All right. I think I think instead that he should go for something more along, like in, in IPA, mm. which is, is sufficiently mysterious to many people. Mm. Yeah, I suppose. That's what all the really cool tattoo parlors are doing now. They're, they're switching over to IPA. I think so. <laughs> Saves time. All right. Our next one comes from Lil Miss Gertrude. OMG, you guys are awesome. Can you please retweet? We're not going to do that, are we? No. No, okay. Yeah, absolutely not. Nope. They're, they're just fishing. But there's your recursiveness again. <laughs> <laughs> it's a plot. Oh, boy. It's a trap. All right. Uh, next one comes from New Uni Bloomer. What's the best language to propose to your girlfriend? The language she speaks. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> All right. This one comes from uh, somebody named Kevy Bick. I want to learn more about unaccusativity. Can you help me? Oh, that one's a little dangerous because if you're dealing with unaccusativity, you may have to handle antipassives. Oh, dear. And you do not want antipassives to come into contact with passives because <laughs> they can create this explosion of zero transitivity verbs, and that's just... Not pretty. <laughs> I think that may be why handling your an- your anti passives is illegal in several states. Oh gosh! 
And this is why there are so few articles about it, because incautious writers have accidentally mixed the passives in their analytical text with the antipassives they were writing about. Yeah, well, at least you asked about that and not unergativity. I'm still waiting for the unnominative. All right, our last one comes from somebody called uh, Tatters the Rag, and the tweet is, I am coming for you, be ready. That one's clearly addressed at you. Oh, okay, all right. Well, I, 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 I can accept that. We have about uh, actually 70, more than 70, more like 80 or 90 more tweets, but they, they're all basically a variation on the same thing, which is how many languages do you speak? Well, maybe we could just clear that up right now, too. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good answer. I'm not going to claim which two. It's spread out over seven or eight. Oh, you mean all of us together? <laughs> now, this assumes that you can actually separate languages into distinct you know, units. I'm not sure you can do that. Do you speak several languages, or do you speak one language with several codes? Mm. <laughs> and, of course, in the bedroom, there is only one language, the language of love. Divine. That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Tune in next time, and we'll have an in-depth discussion of the non-self-referential fractal nature of quantal submori and neo-Kierkegaardian analyses of emergent polysyllabicity under the influence of intoxicants in pan-Polynesian drinking songs. Thanks for listening. Is that, uh, is that Deb and I here? Uh, yep, I'm here. Well, hello. Nice to meet you. Hi. <laughs> My name is Trey. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> don't believe that? anything he says don't, ever. Don't take him too seriously. Right. Oh, goodness. Wow, goodness. This really is the 21st century. This is fantastic. <laughs> you guys are so fancy. Yeah. Very. <laughs> No, it's just me. The rest of them are Luddites. I have no idea what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, except we know how to we, we, pronounce We do Luddite. have a steam-driven splice-a-tron, though, for the, uh, for the tape segment, so we think we're futuristic. Well, that was the worst guest we've ever had. Stop it. <laughs> and the best. <laughs> Tune in next time when we'll have an in-depth discussion of the non-self-referential fractal nature of Quantal submori and neo-Kierkegaardian analyses of immersion polysyllabicity under the influence of intoxicants in pan-Polynesian drinking. When did sauce. we start doing depth? <laughs> Why did you interrupt him? <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> he almost he only slightly mispronounced moray. Oh man! Uh, do it again. Do it again. How would you pronounce it? I mean, moray. I, I will do it again. Didn't I say moray? No, you said morai or something. Well, that's yeah. how you do it in Latin. Oh. <laughs>